Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu slash join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, hosting today with WFIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. We're talking with our guest today about redistricting in Indiana and about how our lines are drawn. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can send questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We've got three guests that we're going to be talking with today. Chris Warshaw is an associate professor of political science at George Washington University and the author of a study on Indiana redistricting. Julia Vaughn is the policy director of Common Cause Indiana. And Andy Downs is the director of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics. Thank you all for joining us today. I want to start with Andy and uh, ask him to sort of set the stage for where Indiana is when it comes to redistricting for the, this cycle. I know, uh, you know, we're going to talk about where we've been, but but where are we now in trying to draw these new lines? Well, thanks for having me. I, I don't think it'll come as a surprise to anybody that this legislative session was a little bit different than previous ones. Normally, by the end of April, the session has ended, and in a, a redistricting year, the boundaries would have been drawn. However, because there were delays at the census, uh, at the Bureau of the Census, getting data to the states, we've not even begun to draw the districts technically. And so instead of adjourning at the end of April, the legislature went into a recess. They will, they will come back again in October or November. I don't think the date's been set yet, at which time they will, they will take care of the official uh, action of drawing the boundaries. The census says that it will have the data out to people. I believe it's at the end of September. That's their estimate at this time. And so that's when we would be able to officially draw the district boundaries. Now, there is some stuff that could be done between now and then. In fact, there are some communities that are a little confused, and they think because of the estimates that have come out from the census, they could be drawing the boundaries already. But those would be based on estimates, not on the actual numbers from the census. So I have no doubt that there are some uh, folks within the legislature and other organizations who have been looking at the estimates and trying to figure out what might make some sense for boundaries going forward. But as it stands right now, the census will deliver that data in, in September, and then the legislature will draw the maps after that. So Andy, when, when the uh, 
Census Bureau delivers that data, how does the legislature go about that? Is, that? is there a particular committee in the legislature that's responsible for this? Uh, this is not unlike a, a lot of pieces of legislation, and it follows basically the same process that other pieces of legislation do. There are committees that work on it. Uh, it does have to pass both chambers. And so we know that, you know, we, we understand the process. What makes this a little bit different is that in, for example, after the 2010 census, the legislature was, I would say, pretty good. Other people would be critical. But I would say they were pretty good at holding meetings around the state, gathering information from people throughout the state. Now, people who are not happy with that process may say that their input was ignored, not that the process for gathering the input was flawed, but that uh, they would be able to at least say they spoke with people around the state and tried to address the concerns of the state. All right. Well, I want, I want to bring Chris Warshaw in now from Georgetown, George Washington University. And uh, Chris, you did a, a study on Indiana's redistricting, and you came up with some fairly stark uh, information about what the uh, legislature did in 2011. Can you give us an overview of what you found? Yeah, that's right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the program. Um, Looking forward to talking with you over the next um, 45 minutes or hour or so. Um, so I did a study for a nonprofit group, uh, Women for Change in Indiana, and this builds on a large body of academic research that I've done over the last um, four or five years on redistricting and gerrymandering around the country. And my view is that before we start the next redistricting process, it's important for, um, for the public and for activists and for journalists have a clear sense of where the, the current plan stands. And as we move forward to try to increase the transparency on the process so that um, people around the, the state in Indiana can really evaluate how this plan looks. And so what I did is I evaluated the current plans used in Indiana for its congressional state house and state senate districts in terms of how much they advantaged um, one political party or the other. And then compared that to the historical plans in Indiana um, and then other, other plans from around the country over the last 50 years. So I think this gives us a really good baseline sense of how biased the, the current plan is in Indiana. So, and how biased is it? Well, what I found is that the current plan has um, more partisan bias than somewhere between 90 and 95% of the other plans around the country over the last 50 years. And it is more pro-Republican bias than 97 or 98% of the previous plans. And that's again, looking not just in Indiana, but in every state around the country uh, between 1972 and 2020. Um, so the degree of partisan bias in these plans is just really stark. Um, and another thing I'll just note is that, you know, Indiana didn't always have this large partisan bias in its um, legislative maps. Previous plans were, um, if not totally unbiased, like much, much more unbiased than the current plans and didn't really have a consistent skew in favor of one party or the other. So it's really this pro-Republican bias really only kicked in when the 2011 map went into place. I looked through your study, just I glanced through the study and I know there, there are some data points that you have. You know, one of the one of the points that I was looking at was wasted votes and how how that is used, you know, in trying to determine the, the amount of biases in it. Can you explain that? 
Yeah, so one of there's a, there's a number of different metrics that academics and scholars use to evaluate the degree of partisan bias in a redistricting plan. And one of those metrics is called the efficiency gap. And the idea is that what you want to do as a as a you know political party is that you want to convert your votes into seats as efficiently as possible. And you know the most efficient way to convert votes into seats would be to win every district to like 51-49. Um, but another great another way to do it is to pack the opposing party's voters into a very small number of districts. So what that means is that they win those districts, the sort of disadvantaged party, which in Indiana's case is the Democrats, wins a small number of districts by really overwhelming margin. And of course, like you don't win, need to win a district by an overwhelming margin. You only need to win 50% of the vote plus one. So all of the votes more than 50 percent plus one um, are really cast inefficiently um, in a way that really you know doesn't doesn't lead to a good translation of votes to, or a fair translation of votes to seats. I think I'll, I'll mention uh, Monroe County in a, in a minute because I think Monroe County might be an example of how that was done. But first, I want to bring Julia Vaughn in from Common Cause, and I know that. Your organization is very interested in redistricting, and I know that you have um, a Citizens Redistricting Commission to take a look at how maybe we could do this in a different way. Can you talk about uh, what Common Cause's interest in this is? Sure. Thanks, Bob, and thanks for including me in this important conversation. Uh, Common Cause Indiana is one of the co-founders of the Indiana Coalition for Independent Redistricting. We've grown to a really diverse coalition of 25 organizations that recognize that Indiana voters are really being harmed by the extreme partisan gerrymander that Dr. Warshaw's research shows and simply reinforces some other research that's been done since 2011. So we worked really hard in the legislative process to try to convince the supermajority to reform redistricting by creating an independent citizens redistricting commission. Unfortunately, that was a, a tough road to hoe. We weren't able to convince the legislature to change redistricting, to reform it. So we decided to do it ourselves. We created this model citizens redistricting commission that is nine Hoosiers, three who are Republican, three who are Democrat, three who don't affiliate, excuse me, affiliate with either major political party. They've held public hearings, virtual public hearings that more than a thousand Hoosiers have participated in. And we've really been generating this grassroots discussion about what's wrong with the districts that were drawn in 2011 and what Hoosiers want to see contained in the new maps that will be drawn later this year. The second part of our project is a public mapping competition. We've created a website, Indiana Districter, that allows anybody with the time and inclination to draw their own political districts. We'll be holding a competition and the districts that we think will best represent Indiana voters and communities across our state will not only win a cash prize, but we will use those maps to compare and contrast the General Assembly's proposals. And I think this way we'll be able to hold them accountable. We will force them to answer tough questions about what motivated the drawing of their maps and why they chose to 
draw the lines where they did. You know, too many communities in our state have been divided, uh, it making it very difficult for them to make their political voices heard in the process. Uh, it's one of the big reasons why we have such poor voter turnout here in Indiana. As Dr. Washer's research points out, there are too many districts in our state that are unwinnable uh, for the minority party. Too often, candidates don't even bother to run. And so, uh, you know, Hoosier voters are responding by staying home uh, because they recognize that they're not really in control of elections in our state. It was the map drawer back in 2011 that has had the most influence. So my organization and our coalition are out to change that this year. All right. We're talking about redistricting on Noon Edition today. We have three guests with us. You were just listening to Julia Vaughn, the Policy Director of Common Cause. We also have Andy Downs, the Director of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics, and Chris Warshaw, George Washington University Associate Professor of Political Science and an author of a study on Indiana's redistricting. I wanted to, to go back to Chris because I, I know when you were talking about packing different districts, you know, I've been um, amused is probably the wrong word, but I've been interested in the fact that where we live, Monroe County, Bloomington, um, there are seven different state representatives and senators that represent parts of our county. Two of them, two, two of them are Democrats, five of them are Republicans, and Monroe County is clearly a, 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 a county that would, would be a, a Democratic stronghold. I, I assume that's the kind of thing that you're talking about. Exactly. So the way that the, the map, um, you know, proceeds in, in building this big partisan bias in favor of, of Republicans is by slicing up places like Bloomington um, so that the, even though the, the city of Bloomington is a Democratic majority, you know, you slice it up and you sort of combine it with the suburban and rural areas so that the Republicans can still win many of the seats there. And then you try to pack the Democrats into a, you know, as few a number of seats as you can in the core of the city. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask Andy Downs about the, the congressional maps. So, you know, to my untrained eye, I look at the congressional maps that we have now, and they, they look to make a lot more sense than congressional maps that we had previously. There was one district, it was district four, I believe our current um, attorney general, Todd Rakito was, the uh, was the congressman at that point that started up near Lafayette and came down around Bloomington, went all the way to Bedford. And that was a that looked like a highly gerrymandered district. Well, those the lines that you see now don't look nearly as bad as that. Yet it appears what we're talking about is that the uh, the gerrymandering is worse. How, if you see what I'm talking about, how can that be? Yeah, I actually, after the 2010 redistricting, 2010 census redistricting, I, uh, for a couple of speaking engagements, put a map of the 2001 congressional districts up next to the 2011, basically, and I asked people which one was the map that was recently drawn. Uh, and I will have to say, and I know Julia attended a bunch of these meetings as well, the, the members of the legislature who were out and about the state after the 2010 census 
took very, I'll say seriously, they wanted to be able to address or at least say they addressed issues like making districts compact, cutting as few counties into parts as possible. And so they actually ended up making some changes that visually look very much like they accomplished things that redistricting, whether it's an independent commission or other group, says they want to accomplish. The fourth district, you write, you're right, for a lot of people, that was the one that was the most bizarre in part because of the way it meandered. But the eighth district managed to cover about two thirds of the western border of the state. The sixth district, over half of the eastern border of the state was covered by the sixth. And the fifth had kind of a funny shape to it as well. When you look at the current map, you say, oh, well, this all makes a whole lot more sense. Everything seems to be much more compact. But this is where the, the I'll call it the beauty, but the, the beauty of how we draw the maps comes into play because visually this seems to take care of the problem. However, when you start looking at election results that come from these maps, you realize that visually it may work better, but from an actual vote total, it does not necessarily do that. And I think the same argument, argument can be made for state house and state senate maps as well. It's a little more difficult for people to see those because we're talking about many more seats, but I, I've shown those groups as well. And people usually think that the most recent maps were the, are, are the quote good ones. Julia has uh, her hand up. She wants to chime in and then we're gonna have Sarah Whitmire with a question. Julia? Thank, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think it's always important to remember that we can't really judge a gerrymander by the shape of the districts. And in fact, I would point to election results. You know, we've gone from uh, two uh, congressional districts that were consistently competitive uh, pre-2011 maps, that's the second and the ninth, to zero congressional districts that have been uh, competitive over the past decade. And so while our districts may look a bit more regularly shaped, they're more compact, they certainly haven't been competitive. And I also think there are big problems in terms of combining communities of interest that don't belong together. In particular, the southern Indiana counties that border the Ohio River. Uh, for example, the 9th Congressional District now spans from the Ohio River to the Indianapolis suburbs. People in southern Indiana told us they don't want to be in a district with suburban Indianapolis. They feel that southern Indiana is a distinct community of interest that needs to be on its own in its own congressional district and not commingled with communities up in the central part of the state. So um, we've got to be real careful uh, because it's it's not it's like you can't judge a book by its cover. You can't draw a gerrymander by the shape of the districts. Julia, and then maybe Chris can weigh in too, but we're talking about Republicans and how they're influencing these districts, but couldn't the argument be made that if Democrats had a super majority, then they oh, would do the same thing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, gerrymandering is an equal opportunity abuse. Uh, when Democrats had the ability in Indiana to draw maps to favor their candidates, they did it. Uh, but the, the difference in 2011 was that Republicans, you know, it was a Republican trifecta. They controlled the House, Senate, and the governor's office. 
So really the, the um, Democrats were just backseat passengers along the way. And certainly the maps have reflected that. That's why we cannot leave this job to the elected officials. That creates a situation where we allow the politicians to choose their voters instead of voters choosing their politicians. We've got to pass redistricting reform that includes a multipartisan citizens redistricting commission composed of voters who have no direct interest in the outcome of redistricting. Chris, do you want to respond to that as well? Yeah, I'll just add that I think that the you know the challenge in in, in evaluating a, a legislative map is that uh, you know it's really hard to see to the naked eye where the the map is gerrymandered to help the advantaged party. Um, and maps, you know, the compactness of a map typically isn't all that correlated with how much partisan bias there is because parties, you know, they're pretty good at making maps now that actually look pretty good as technology's gotten better and they know that's something the public kind of looks at. Um, so I think that, you know, it's really important to look at the partisan bias in a map rather than just looking at how sort of pretty the districts look. All right. We're talking about redistricting today. You can join us on the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can send us questions there and you can also send us questions at noon edition on Twitter. Uh, Julia was talking about um, an independent commission to do this. Are there states that get this right? And are there states that have these commissions that are um, drawing less partisan maps? Yes, absolutely. Common Cause has done studies that look at the competitiveness of congressional and state legislative races. And there's definitely a correlation between the states that do redistricting with independent commissions. California probably has the gold standard, but more and more states are adopting this reform, uh, including our neighbors to the north, Michigan. They have a really unique process in place to select the members of their citizens commission. And that's really the challenge. You know, there, there are a number of states that have commissions that are made up of political appointees, and that's not something that our coalition has pursued in terms of reform here in Indiana. We want a more independent group of people not affiliated with the legislature in any way. So, um, you know, it's a challenge to set up a process like that, but many states have gone that route. I will note that almost all of the states that have passed redistricting reform have done it through the ballot initiative, which unfortunately is not an option here in Indiana. As I mentioned earlier, it is a very tough sell uh, to go into a state with a legislative supermajority and convince that supermajority to give up some of their power uh, through a more fair redistricting process. Yeah, absolutely. I I actually use the example of Iowa from after the 2000 census in class, in part because it's, you know, there are not a lot of congressional districts to keep track of, but the maps changed significantly in terms of the distribution of seats. And if you understand the state, you understand the shift in where the lines are in terms of doing things like keeping communities of interest together. But beyond that, beyond sort of still being compact and keeping communities of interest together, it also created much more competitive districts. 
Now, that's not to say that it, it suddenly became a 50-50 state, but it became a state in which the minority party would be able to say to candidates, hey, look, we know historically our party has not done well in this particular district, but in a good year, we think you can, which makes it a lot easier to recruit quality candidates, which makes it a lot easier to have competitive elections, which as we all know, helps to drive turnout. So that's, that's something that I, I use as an example. And uh, back to a point that Chris raised earlier, when you look at Indiana, we said Indiana has not always drawn maps that are as partisan as they are today. Keep in mind that part of that was because of uh, divided government. The big issue that Indiana and other states are facing, as Julia pointed out, is that when you have the House, the Senate, and the governor's office all controlled by the same party, the minority party is, she referred to it as a backseat passenger. In some respects, they're not even that because everything can get passed without them, especially if you're looking at a supermajority. Yeah, they're standing waiting on the corner for the bus. That, that there you go. Analogy. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that just to pursue that point a little bit more, and maybe Chris can join us on this conversation too. I mean, the, with Indiana, the supermajority is even stronger than it was in, you know, the, the Republicans have the House, they have the Senate, they have the governor's office, but the super majorities in the legislature are even stronger than they were in 2011. So realistically, what kind of maps do you think we're going to get this year? And how, how can we um, not get, not just double down on the partisanship? Well, here's the thing that's really different in 2021 is that the public is really paying attention. Uh, this is going to be my third round of redistricting, and I can tell you that many more people are aware of the significance of redistricting on elections, and then that's a very long-term impact. You know, it lasts for a decade. And I think that some of the extreme things that the Indiana General Assembly has done over the past decade has helped this recognition. You know, it was the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, uh, that I think caused a lot of people to look at the Indiana General Assembly and say, why are these people so much more conservative and concerned about social issues than me and my neighbors? You know, I, I don't find these folks representative. And of course, we were there to say, well, it's all about how the district lines were drawn. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's always a challenge to impact redistricting, and it's particularly difficult when you do have Republican supermajorities controlling everything. But the eyes of the public are watching. And again, we have these tools like the public mapping website. So we're going to be able to really introduce a, a much different level of accountability, transparency, and openness. And I think we've got the legislature a little bit back on their heels. I mean, you know, this, this delay in getting census data has allowed us to talk about redistricting for months. And I think they would much rather not be having this conversation. So a lot of Hoosiers are watching with great interest and we're gonna do everything we can to pressure the legislature to draw fair maps in 2021. I do want to note that we invited several Republicans to join us today, but um, we were declined. Um, and I know Republicans have argued that, you know, maybe Indiana is just a really red state. Um, Andrew Downs, maybe you can just sort of respond to that. 
Yeah, I, I often tell people that Indiana is a pretty conservative state. And I say that in part because you can find an awful lot of Democrats, especially down in the South, but throughout the state, who are mo definitely moderate, even conservative compared to Democrats in other states. So there, there is no doubt Indiana is a conservative state and that manifests itself as Republicans holding an awful lot of offices. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. However, when you look at uh, potential election results and, and by that, I mean, start down at the township level and work your way to cities and towns and counties, et cetera. Just don't look at just the legislative seats. And you can find plenty of examples where Democrats have been able to win. And from a political science perspective, if somebody is able to win, for example, a seat on a city council, that makes them more viable as a candidate for mayor. If they're able to win as mayor of a, a small or medium-sized city, then they potentially could run for a state senate seat because they're building a constituency, a group of voters who support them. However, if the maps are drawn in a way that really disadvantages them, there's almost no reason to do that. So you get a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there that is that for some people is really kind of painful to watch. Uh, additionally, while Indiana is a conservative state, I wanna point out that 10 years ago, the Republicans were using the percentage of vote going to Republican candidates as an argument for why they should have more seats. Uh, they, I mean, they, they weren't quite that blunt. Julia might disagree with me, they were. Uh, but they pretty much said, if you look at statewide distribution of votes, we should have more seats than we have right now. And ta-da, the maps have borne that out. Now the Democrats have brought up uh, basically a similar argument. So I, I think it's safe to say that in this case, the, the politics are really easy to understand, whether it's the Republicans in this state, Democrats in states that lean D, you use the argument that works for you. As my dad used to say, the drunk goes to the lamppost, not for enlightenment, but for support. And so it's easy enough to find data that supports your position that your party should control more seats, whether that's at a city council level, the state house, or the U.S. House of Representatives. I remember having uh, State Senate President Pro Tem um, Rod Bray on the program, I think heading into the last legislative session, we talked about redistricting. And uh, Andy, one of the things that he pointed out was the number of you know, that the counties are not, you know, they're, they're not in the redistricting discussion per se. But if you look at the number of county commissioners around the state, you're going to find a vast majority of them are Republicans. And, and that was one of the things he used to bolster his position. You were talking about how, you know, in some communities, you might get a Democratic city councilman or, or whatnot that could move up. But isn't it true that most county offices go to Republicans? If you look well, at 92 I wanna, counties, I want to push back. Go ahead, Chris. But then this is Chris. I want to push back against that a little bit. I mean, okay. you know, it's, at, at the end of the day, there's an old adage that you know, land doesn't vote, people vote. And there's a lot of counties in Indiana that are really small. And you know, about half the population in Indiana lives in you know a, a relatively small fraction of its counties. So even if even though it's true that the most counties, the majority of the counties in Indiana. Um, sort of reliably elect Republicans down ballot, you know, that actually isn't that meaningful for what a fair legislative plan should be, or what we should expect to see in Congress or the state legislature. Um, so I really think that's a, it's actually a pretty disingenuous argument that people use. 
Yeah, Chris is making a great point. We, I mean, we have 92 counties, but the, the vast majority of them are small. Uh, and with that comes a more rural environment, quite often a much more conservative or Republican bent to them. And so if you just talk raw numbers, you can make that argument. Democrats used to make the argument in terms of the land argument, they would make the land argument about cities because at one point they held more mayoralties than the Republicans did. It's, it's parties going to the data that helps to make their point. And that's where folks uh, like us, I mean, voters uh, and, and political scientists and, and groups like Common Cause and, and others have to say, okay, you used that argument before, why aren't you using it now? Why are you using this data instead of that data? In other words, hold them accountable to see if their logic will actually hold through a longer discussion. Chris, in your uh, report, you used, there's a, there are a lot of numbers in your report, and I, I want you to explain some of them where uh, you might have, uh, I think there was one example early on in the report about three districts, and one went heavily Democrat, and the other two went um, less heavily Republican. So the, the Republicans won two of the three districts, but if you look at the three combined, the Democrats won the total percentage of the vote in those three districts. Can you sort of point out some of these some of these numbers and how they work to skew things? Yeah, I mean, with the with that example you just mentioned really illustrates is that there's it's very easy to draw legislative maps where a party wins, you know, far more seats than they do votes. And even you can even draw a map where you could win a majority of the votes, but a small minority of the seats. And that's actually what we see in, in Indiana, or sorry, in, not Indiana, in Wisconsin, where the um, Republican majority there has drawn such a strong gerrymander that Democrats have actually won the majority of the vote in the legislature several times. Um, but a minority, but a small minority of seats. And we see the same thing in Michigan for the previous, for the current, the current map. Um, and, you know, in Indiana, I think where that works is that what, what's happened is that the Democratic votes in cities, you know, really packed into a small number of districts. Um, and at the statewide level, what that means is that, you know, this is a state that's a, clearly a red-leaning state, um, uh, President Trump won 57% of the vote in the 2020 election. But in the state Senate, Republicans control almost 80% of the seats. Um, and in the congressional district, Republicans control seven out of nine seats. You know, so it's just far disproportionate to the percentage of the votes that they get. And you'd expect there to be a little bit of a winner's bonus where, you know, you wouldn't expect Democrats to get exactly the same percentage of the seats as they do of the votes. But um, you know, there's, there's no fair map where you would expect Republicans to get 80% of the seats um, with 57% of the vote. All right, you're listening to Noon Edition, and we are talking about redistricting today and about how Indiana's maps, uh, according to a study done by Chris Warshaw from George Washington University, are among the most biased in the nation. If you have questions or comments, you can uh, send them to us, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. So, Julia, as you go along, what's what's next for Common Cause in this? You've got the, these tools. How are you going to um, how are you going to make sure that that you get plenty of different examples, and how are you going to distribute those, you know, throughout uh, Indiana? 
Well, uh, we're working real hard to educate people. Uh, we've got some training videos coming out that are really exciting, going to help people learn how to use the software, uh, what the rules for the competition are going to be. We're continuing to hold public events. Uh, tomorrow is actually the 277th birthday of Governor Elbridge Gary. Uh, the former Massachusetts governor who unfortunately became the namesake for manipulating political lines for partisan gain, uh, gerrymandering. So uh, we're going to have a, a gerrymander meander voter cade here in Indianapolis. We'll be driving by the governor's mansion and delivering a letter to Governor Holcomb uh, asking him to take a stand. Um, you know, right now the General Assembly hasn't even made a public announcement about uh, when redistricting is going to happen. Um, and we think there needs to be more openness and transparency about the process. Uh, it was rumored there was an article uh, written last week with unnamed sources that said the General Assembly plans to use the legacy data that will come out on August 16th. Uh, we've heard that there might be legislators returning to the state house uh, a couple of weeks in September and actually getting this done before October. So right now we're at the point where citizens need to demand answers and a timeline from the General Assembly. When is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? And will the public have meaningful opportunities for public input? And again, we think one of the best ways to have that input is um, uh, drawing your own district. So we, like everybody else, are waiting on the census data to be delivered from the uh, Bureau. Uh, once we get that loaded up, we'll make a big public announcement. Uh, we're doing a lot of individual outreach to people like geography educators, folks who would have a natural interest in this project. But it's open to every Hoosier, and we really encourage people to uh, take advantage of this opportunity because what a cool thing, you know, to be able to say that I drew the maps that became the standard bearer for what a fair uh, redistricting proposal would be. So uh, just continuing lots of public education, outreach, and events to keep this most important issue before Hoosiers and make sure they take advantage of the opportunities to participate. I want to put in a quick plug for the website that Julia mentioned earlier. It's District R. So if you spell it out, D-I-S-T-R-I-C-T-R dot org slash Indiana, that's the one that will allow people to draw maps for the state. But there actually are local governments, thanks to GIS and the proliferation of mapping programs, that will do similar sorts of things for their city or their county. It won't be a large number, but there will be some that will do that. And it really does create an opportunity for people to become active participants in this really important process because they understand what they mean by, by, um, by uh, communities of interest and those sorts of things. They should be able to have a chance to participate. And I want to uh, point out that uh, Chris mentioned uh, Michigan a bit ago. Uh, Michigan will be interesting to watch because this will be they're they're going through this with their independent commission for the first time, as I recall. And so we'll see what happens there. We've got an example just to the north of us where we can watch how this works out if maps are not drawn by the elected officials. 
So Andy, just hearing yep. Julia talk about all these different unknowns and we don't know when the data will be delivered, when they plan on reconvening, what was an alternative to doing it this way where we, you know, just sort of put the legislature on hold and then we're going to reconvene? Is this the best way we could have done this? Well, I, I, uh, I'm slow to ever say that something was the best or worst of anything. I don't like to use those sort of superlatives out there. Uh, what I will say is that because the census collects data on such a regular basis, and although we move around quite a bit, we don't really move that much, it is possible to take, as Julia mentioned, the legacy data, or for that matter, data from even earlier, and begin drawing maps and do so in a way that creates almost uh, a foregone conclusion for what will happen. So imagine I'm a legislator and I draw a bunch of maps based on old data and then the new data comes out and I'm able to say, well, you know what, if we just move this boundary a little bit here and this one a little bit here, see, it's all fine. But my maps have become the standard by which the rest of maps will be judged because I was able to do that. The challenge is when the community doesn't get access to that sort of data in a way that allows them to draw maps, there are groups that have access to that data, access to professionals that are able to draw the maps uh, and those maps become the foregone conclusion. We've all been on a committee where someone decided the name of a program just off the top of their head. And unfortunately, the name of that program was a terrible name, but it's what we all started calling it. And that became the name of the program. Same thing can happen here. Draw the maps with old data or legacy data, if you're willing to wait, wait a little bit longer, then suddenly, ta-da, those are the maps that people consider to be the norm. And nobody wants to start from scratch because it can be intimidating to draw a map from scratch. There is an awful lot to take into consideration, 92 counties, over a thousand townships. I mean, you start adding up the number of precincts, et cetera, and it is a daunting task to draw maps. Think about, uh, you know, the, this daunting task in drawing maps. And I, I guess I want to ask Chris Warshaw, when you think about other, you know, other states, Indiana and other states that you've done, I mean, are there states where people are actually happy with their maps? Well, what we see is that the places that have um, fair maps that aren't biased toward one party or the other, people do tend to be happier with their representatives. And I think, you know, building on what some others talked about earlier, like all the evidence is that nonpartisan commissions work really, really well at taking the politics out of this process and getting fair maps, um, which I think, you know, just makes our democracy work better. It's what we should all want. And I think that you know, Indiana is obviously not going to have a nonpartisan commission this time around. Uh, hopefully it will for 2030. Um, but for this time around, I think that one thing that is different than in 2011 is there will be more transparency. There's going to be, um, there's a lot more websites where you can evaluate maps and see how biased they are. Um, there's going to be a lot of people, including me, that are analyzing the maps, hopefully in close to real time. Um, so I do think that we'll have a better sense this time around than in 2011 of what these these maps are really going to do for the political process in Indiana. So what are what are the and hopefully goals? That, and hopefully that'll help citizens get more engaged in the process. Yeah, what are the goals of of good maps? I mean, if you could list like five goals that that the people drawing the maps should be looking for. And we've heard terms like, you know, compact. Um, we've heard. Um, different, you know, areas of interest. What, what are the goals that people should be reaching toward? 
Well, well in my view, as a political scientist, as a political scientist, I think that you know really we should be building maps that help us build a democracy that represents everyone's voice equally. And the way to do that is have a map that's not biased toward one party, and that where you have competitive districts that you know with, if there's swings in in voters' preferences, they could actually you know change hands between the parties. Um, and that's going to incentivize politicians to pay attention to what people want. And it'll ensure that the government is reflective of um, sort of the mass public's preferences in Indiana. Julia? I would reiterate in our public hearings, we uh, heard consistent testimony from voters all across Indiana. The number one wish on our wish list is more, comp more competitive districts. Uh, too many people in Indiana feel as if their votes don't matter. Uh, they continue going to the polls, pulling the lever, and nothing ever changes. And so uh, that was an important thing that people talked about. Also, listening and recognizing communities of interest, uh, trying to keep them intact whenever possible. So again, these folks, these groups of like-minded individuals can exert their power in the political process. Uh, thirdly, we heard consistent testimony from communities like Monroe County that have been arbitrarily divided into too many districts to minimize the division of political subdivisions whenever possible. So, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's not easy to achieve a district that uh, is all of these things equally but I think more than anything else, Hoosiers miss competitive elections. And they recognize, as Dr. Warshaw says, that accountability suffers when an elected official is assured re-election uh, simply because the district was drawn to favor their political party. So Hoosiers want accountability. They want to really matter in elections in our state. And they're increasingly understanding that redistricting has an awful lot to do with that. Julia, can you explain, I know a few years ago, there was a redistricting commission that met a lot and um, they even right. had a report and some proposed legislation. And I believe it was Milo Smith, maybe out of Columbus. Yes, that was the interim study committee on redistricting. Our coalition worked for a year and a half to pressure that entity, and we actually succeeded. A bipartisan recommendation came out of that study committee recommending that the General Assembly pass uh, a Citizens Redistricting Commission. Unfortunately, the very next year, uh, Representative Milo Smith, who was the chair of the House Elections Committee at that time, he has since retired. Uh, we had 300 people show up for a hearing uh, in his committee for the bill that uh, was part of the legislative recommendation from the study committee. We had an hour and a half of testimony, all of it in support of that bill, except for one lone individual and the end result was Representative Smith refused to allow a vote in committee, so that bill died. And uh, subsequently, uh, bills to create commissions didn't even get hearings in the legislature 
because many people felt that it was it was just a hopeless exercise. So, you know, we we have worked hard. We've gotten a legislative recommendation for reform, but I think that's it simply underscores the difficulty of trying to reform redistricting through the legislative process. I feel confident that if we had the ballot initiative like our neighbors to the North Michigan uh, do and were able to reform redistricting, that things would be different this year in Indiana. But unfortunately, we are stuck with the processes we have. Uh, We do think our model Citizens Commission though is gonna make a really good argument uh, to come back next year and continue our work to pass legislation to create a Citizens Commission. I'd like to go back quickly to how we define good maps. And and I'll admit right up front, Chris is a better political scientist than I am and Julia is a better advocate than I am. But competitive elections is one of the things that really drives turnout. It makes people show up. And although we don't, if you look at the General Assembly, it's not uncommon for us to have 25 to even 30% of the seats uncontested let alone having the, uh, the, the second person running for a seat being from a minority party or even one of the you know, third party libertarians, et cetera. That's a lot of seats that go uncontested and that's problematic in the grand scheme of things. I'll throw on that, that if you wanna talk competitive elections, a lot of people will say, well, the primaries are competitive and that may be true, but Indiana's primary election law actually limits who is supposed to be participating in those things. So for me, the number one thing, if you want to improve legislation, if you want to improve participation, if you want more civic engagement and civic involvement, have maps that make for competitive districts. This may be uh, introducing a very big topic with very little time to go, but uh, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about um, systemic racism in our nation. And I wondered, Chris, Uh, Is there evidence of gerrymandering that works to the disadvantage of certain minority groups? Is that commonly done? Well, certainly historically, this was one of the motivations for the Voting Rights Act, that particularly in the South, it's very clear that districts were drawn intentionally to disadvantage minority groups. and I don't think there's, there hasn't been a lot of work on how much there's, you know, despite the Voting Rights Act, people have continued to try to do that. I'm sure it happened. Um, but I think that, you know, a challenge is that partisanship and, um, and, and race tends to be commingled. So I think that, um, you know, it's hard to distinguish the motivation for maps in Indiana that are trying to disadvantage Democrats. They could also be trying to disadvantage, um, you know, ethnic minorities. Um, uh, so I think certainly that, you know, this is something that's something to keep an eye on going forward. Okay. We only have about two minutes to go. So I want to want to give each of you a chance for kind of a, a final comment about what you think uh, voters, Hoosiers should be looking at as we get into this, uh, this redistricting debate and discussion here later this year. And Julia, let's start with you. Sure. I want to encourage everybody to contact not only your state legislators, your state representative, your state senator, tell them you expect them to look out for the interest of voters in the redistricting process, not their political party. But at this point, really talk to the leadership. 
the president pro tem of the Senate, the Speaker of the House, and the two chairs of the Elections Committee, who are Senator John Ford from Terre Haute and Representative Tim Wesco from South Bend. Right now, they're the folks in charge. And tell them we need to know, you know, keeping us in the dark about very basic things like when redistricting is going to happen, how the public's going to participate is only going to increase the distrust that Hoosiers have for this process. So they need to make a public announcement as soon as possible as to what's going to happen because Hoosiers have too much at stake here. 30 seconds, Andy. I, I, of course, agree with everything Julia said, and I would encourage people to take every opportunity they have to try and draw their own maps. One, to understand the complexity of it, but also to spend some time really thinking about what they mean by communities of interest and things that might be done to create competitive elections. Chris, last word. Well, I just encourage everyone to be engaged as engaged as they can in this process. You know, make sure to um, hold the state legislators' feet to the fire. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that's going to um, incentivize them to generate maps that are fair for everyone and help everyone's voice be represented in politics. All right. Thank you very much. That was Chris Warshaw from George Washington University. We've also been joined by Julia Vaughn from Common Cause Indiana and Andy Downs from the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics. For my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, producers Kathy Knapp, Mental Boutier, and John Bailey, our engineer. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.